cabinet where they have the greatest achievers, you know, and the trophies and all of that, but also featured the greatest failures. It might disturb you, especially if you saw your old report card featured in that latter section. Now, if the Apostle Peter was being interviewed for a job and asked to identify his biggest failure, I think he would have mentioned the one that is featured prominently in each of the Gospels. Right? The story of how he not only failed to stand up for Jesus in his darkest hour, but how he denied that he even knew him. It would be hard to get over a failure like that. Which is why I think the final chapter in John's gospel is so important for all of us in all of our failures. I invite you to turn to, to John 21. During the season of Lent, the 40 days leading up to Easter, we've been looking at the stories of Jesus that shape us in the Gospel of John. And so I thought it was appropriate to, to finish off the Gospel of John with chapter 21. Let's read John 21. After Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee, it happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, or the twin... Nathanael from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. And when they did, they were unable to haul in the net because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. And as soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him for he had taken it off and he jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a about hundred yards or ninety meters. And when they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153 but even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. None of his disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, and gave it to them, and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? 
He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and said, Lord, who is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he he asked, Lord, uh, what about him? Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Now, because of this, rumors spread among the believers that this disciple would not die. But Jesus did not say that he would not die. He only said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? This is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. Jesus did many other things as well. If, if every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. Many people would prefer if John had ended his gospel with chapter 20. It has a wonderful ending, chapter 20, where it talks about Jesus performed many signs and in in the presence of disciples. And these things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. A great ending. But the more that I studied chapter 21, the more convinced I became of how important, of its importance in the way that it features Jesus restoring Peter and preparing his followers to carry on his mission. Now, as the chapter begins, it looks like the disciples, seven of the eleven, have gone back to square one. That is, they're back to where they started. Notice, they are back in Galilee. And Peter, he's back to his old name, being called Simon Peter. And they're back fishing. That was their old job in the days before they met Jesus. And notice they're even back to not recognizing Jesus fully for who he is. Now, despite all of the surprising, agonizing, and exciting events they had seen and experienced in recent days, they found themselves back at home, back to ordinary life. Peter decides he'd like to go fishing. Maybe he and the others are a bit bored or... Maybe they just don't know what to do next. When Jesus appeared to them in person on that resurrection day, he had not only calmed their fears, he had also commissioned and he had equipped them with his Holy Spirit to carry on his mission to restore people's relationship with the Father. Peace be with you. I am sending you. He breathes on them the Holy Spirit and he tells them this mission to forgive people and, uh, and to carry on that work of restoring people to relationship with God. But Jesus had also told them, we know from the other Gospels, like Mark, that he had told them to go and to wait in Galilee. So while they were waiting, they decided to go fishing, just like old times in the family business. But they seemed to have lost their touch. 
Because despite working all that night, and night was prime fishing time, uh, they caught nothing. Not one fish. As dawn breaks, they're almost at shore, close enough to hear a stranger call out those dreaded words. Friends, haven't you any fish? Can you hear the misery in the disciples' response? I can. And I think Jesus can. And so he tells them, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. I can imagine the disciples, probably some of them are wondering if he's teasing them. You know, oh yeah, the right side of the boat. Others might have thought perhaps that he had seen something from where he was and knew something that they didn't. Whatever the discussion, they decided to do what he said. And when they did, their net was suddenly so full of fish they were unable to haul it in. It was a revealing moment for the disciple whom Jesus loved. And so he said to Peter, it's the Lord. Well, Peter, Peter was off like a shot, grabbing his clothes, plunging into the lake, lunging toward Jesus as fast as he could, leaving the rest of the disciples to to bring in the boat ashore and to drag in that net full of fish. It was the most excitement they'd had in a boat since, oh, since earlier, day, years earlier, when Jesus had asked them to use their boat as a pulpit. On that occasion, he taught the crowd from it all day long, and, and just when they thought the day was over, he had said to them, uh, go out into the deep water and let your nets down for a catch. Well, on that occasion, Simon had told them it was a terrible idea, that they had already worked hard all night and had caught nothing. But because Jesus said so, they did it. And when their nets hit the water on that occasion, they caught so many fish that all of them, it took all of them and both boats to bring them all in. Now, they had fished all their lives, but they had never seen anything like this. And Simon Peter, this experienced fisherman, he knew that he was in the presence of the real master. And on that day, he had fallen down before him in utter humility, like like people fall down before in the presence of a great king. That was the day Simon Peter and the others embraced Jesus' offer when he had said, come, follow me, and you will fish for people. And so, Now, on this occasion, when his fishing partner said, it's the Lord, all those memories of that previous event came flooding back. Clearly, the master was back. He was back in charge again, telling them what to do, where to fish, telling Peter, you know, bring some of those 153 large fish that they had just caught. And 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 then telling them to come and have breakfast. You know, there were many repeat performances that Jesus was doing in this chapter. And it must have been wonderful to have the master back, just like the good old days. But notice it wasn't quite like the good old days. He is recognizably the same Jesus. But the events of Easter also seem to have made him unmistakably different. For one thing, the master wasn't and wouldn't be physically with them all the time like he had been in the old days. And yet he was with them 
watching over them, guiding them, providing for them, even before they realized it was him all along. That would take some getting used to. But it was clear that he wasn't sending them to carry on his mission on their own. No, he would be returning to the Father as he promised, but he would not be leaving them as orphans. He was still their leader. And things, yes, things would still work best. Like they always had when he was the one giving the instructions, not them. That's the only way that they caught fish. That's the only way that they would reach people. Now there was still some unfinished business Jesus wanted to attend with, to with Peter. So in, in verse 15 it says that when they had finished eating... Jesus took Peter aside. Probably the other disciples are still within earshot, listening in to what's being said next, because Jesus says, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Probably more than these guys? Now, in the past, oh, Peter was sure that he did, and he told them all so. Even if all of you fall away on account, I never will. Never. He would be there for Jesus in his darkest hour. But of course, all those other guys knew too that he had caved in under the pressure and he had disowned Jesus three times. So, did he love Jesus more than these guys? Peter no longer believed that. But despite his bitter failure, he still loved Jesus with all his heart. Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Then Peter, feed my lambs. Feed my precious lambs with the, with the bread of God's word and with the things I have taught you so that they will grow deep and strong in my love and, and learn to walk in all my ways. Remember, you're, you're not a hired hand who runs for cover when things get difficult and dangerous. No, be like a good shepherd who loves his lambs enough to lay down his life for him. Again, Jesus asked Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Do you love me with God-like love? You see, that's the word for love that Jesus has been using here. He used it the first time. It's agape in Greek. And he will use it the second time as well. Peter will use the best of human-like love. Now, Jesus, the second time, he had dropped that phrase, more than these. But he hadn't yet dropped the God-like love from his question. Do I love you with God-like love, Peter must have asked. I, I want to, Lord, and I thought I did, but I can't say that I do because I didn't. I didn't love you with an unfailing love. But it doesn't mean that I don't love you, Lord. Far from it. Lord, you know that I love you with the deepest human-like love possible. Phileo in Greek. Then Peter, feed Take care of my sheep. Because they need someone to shepherd them, to guard them from false teaching, 
and false teachers. Watch over them because I'm counting on you to do that for me and with me. Now the third time Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? It really stung. For one thing, his threefold question reopened the painful wound of Peter's threefold denial. The three times he had said, I am not his disciple. So Peter knew, I think, why Jesus had singled him out for this conversation. Why he was questioning his love, Peter's love for him. I think Peter had asked himself that same question a thousand times in recent days. He probably also wondered, had Jesus lowered the bar when he asked if he loved him with deepest human love possible? You see, the third time Jesus asked, he isn't using the agape word for love anymore. He's switched over to phileo. Do you phileo? Love me. And Peter probably wondered if Jesus maybe had lowered the bar to his level. He wasn't sure, but he knew that when he had said, when he had heard his fellow disciples say, it is the Lord, it was love still that threw caution to the wind. Love that prompted Peter to literally go overboard for Jesus. Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, Peter, I'm trusting you to feed my sheep. Why three times? I don't think Jesus asked him three times if he loved him in order to shame him. He did it to restore him. Or to restory him. To replace that old story with a new story by giving him the opportunity to undo those three denials. A chance for a new story with a better ending. You know, there's a, another double that takes place in this chapter. In, uh, in, in John chapter 18, when Peter is doing a, and when he's going to deny him, he is meeting around a charcoal fire. Now, that is a rare word. It only occurs twice in the New Testament. The usual word for fire, pyre, is used like 74 times. But anthrakia is only used twice. And it's used there in that context. You know, you've sat around a campfire. The smoke kind of gets into you even. Charcoal fire, very specific word. And it's around a charcoal fire that Jesus is cooking the breakfast in John 21. I think he's replacing that old story with a new one. Jesus is assuring Peter that he is forgiven and he is counting on him to shepherd his flock. The greatest responsibility. But Peter can only guide, nourish, and be responsible for people in Jesus' name if he loves Jesus. If he loves Jesus enough to give his life for him. And as much as Peter loved Jesus, I think he no longer believed that his love for Jesus was sufficient to do that. To give his life for him. He had failed so badly at that before. Peter didn't believe it, but I think Jesus did. Jesus did. And I think that is why he told Peter on oath, very truly I tell you, that's in the most solemn way, 
He tells Peter his destiny. It's not a prediction about old age, John clarifies that, but how he would give his life, how he would die on a martyr. We know from church history that Peter's arms were really stretched out. He died crucified for Jesus. Now, initially I thought a prediction like that must have sounded like terrible news. But on second thought, I realized for Peter this was good news. The news that he needed to hear. That 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 overwhelming fear that had led him to deny his Lord three times had been now overcome. Jesus was replacing that former prophecy. Peter, you know you're so confident, but you're going to deny me three times. He's replacing that prophecy of Peter's failure with a prophecy of Peter's unfailing love for him to the very end. And that... That was good news indeed. You know, one writer has called Jesus' question, you know, do you love me? The qualifying exam, not just for Peter or for pastors and elders, but for all Christians. As N.T. Wright observes, here is the secret of all Christian ministry. If you're going to do any single solitary thing as a follower and servant of Jesus, this is what it's built on. Somewhere, keep down inside there, somewhere deep down inside, there's a love for Jesus. And though goodness knows you've let him down enough times, he wanted to find that love to give you a chance to express it, to heal the hurts and failures of the, of the past, and to give you new work to do. It's perhaps worth noting that Jesus' question is not do you love my sheep? Hmm. You see, sheep, people, are not always lovable. And so, whatever love that we may have for them is not sufficient to sustain us in ministry. It's not. The only way that we can love the unlovable like Jesus did is if the love of Christ is what motivates us and moves us. Our ministry Everything we do as believers must be rooted in that love and in his unfailing love for us. Peter, in his letter, 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 to 2, he will say, Since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude. Live for the will of God. As Jesus has done for you, now you do. Carry it forward. You see, ministry is doing for others what Jesus has already done for us. Notice it is after breakfast, after feeding Peter and the disciples that Jesus calls him and the others to feed this other sheep. Only as we are fed and cared for by Christ are we able to feed and care for others. That's what keeps the well of our compassion flowing as it keeps being filled by Christ. The most important experience for ministry is our experience of being ministered to by Christ and passing that on. Uh, Paul, in his letter to the Second Corinthians, he will talk about how the way that we have been comforted with God's comfort, that is what we are to share with others. It's as God, as, as God is working in our life that we share that forward. I remember it was uh, shortly after I had finished... Um, my seminary training, 
that Elaine and I, we were expecting our first, and most of you know the story, but suddenly we, we found ourselves in, in a crisis with our firstborn, our first child that we were expecting. And we spent a lot of time going through tests. And then when she was born in the hospital day after day for weeks. And uh, I remember Elaine saying, you know, I know you went through all your ministry training, but she said, I think this was our real ministry training. Getting a feel for what is, what is this like to live in, through crisis. You see, and not everyone has the same ministry experience or calling. Despite Jesus restoring and, and recalling Peter to, his, to leadership and sacrificial service, you know, Peter can't seem to keep himself from comparing his calling with that of his fellow disciple. Uh, Lord, what about him? Now, we don't know exactly why Peter wanted to know. Perhaps he was just curious. Perhaps it was brotherly concern. Or maybe there's still a bit of a competitive bent there to Peter. It, it's often hard not to compare ourselves with others. Right? Even in our spiritual roles and responsibilities. I can tell you I'm going to a conference next weekend and, uh, you know, and we greet one another as pastors. And how's it going in the church? You know, it's hard not to feel like a, you know, a little competition or upper or downer going on as well. You know, but Jesus, he is so blunt here and direct. He redirects Peter's attention immediately back to his own calling. Peter, if I want him to remain alive till I return, what is that to you? You follow me. You see, friends, we have no authority to determine the calling and destiny of others. You know, whether we're pastors or as parents, you know, we want to determine that. Or as family or as friends. Now, that is not to say that we shouldn't discuss it with one another. Since it is often these callings and how God has gifted and enabled us is often done best in community. I mean, I, I know that an essential part of my call to pastoral ministry was just, have you ever thought of being a pastor? I mean, the first time I was asked that, it was no problem. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> you know. But as, as several people, it's like, I don't think they've been comparing notes. Should I be thinking about this? Should I be asking the Lord about it? Community is very important. But since our calling and what Christ calls us to is ultimately to be determined by Jesus, our role with others is to, is to pray, to help others to hear from Jesus for themselves. And as N.T. Wright points out, God, and he, and he sees God as the, kind of the great director and he says, God makes no mistakes in casting. You know, he knew, knows, you know, who should be playing which role. He makes no mistakes in casting. And part of Christian obedi obedience, right, says, is knowing that we are called to follow Jesus wherever he leads us. Not wherever he leads the person next to us. Jesus' words to the other disciple apparently sparked a misunderstanding, maybe even for years, that the writer wanted to correct. Some have suggested this unnamed disciple was John. Some have claimed that it was Lazarus. 
You see, remember, Jesus had said he loved Lazarus and he brought him back to life about a week before Jesus was resurrected. Story in John 11. And it's easy to see how there might well have been this expectation that, well, he died once, he's not going to die again. Now, we can never be certain who this unnamed disciple was. Many think it's the Apostle John. Some think it's Lazarus. Some think it was James. But what the writer, and whether this was the community, you know, filling in these last verses to, to clarify this point, what they want us to know is that his testimony, his eyewitness testimony of Jesus' life and teaching is true. And you know what? Ever since it was shared, ever since it was written down, this gospel, this eyewitness testimony of Jesus' life and teaching has continued to, to both lead people to put their faith in Jesus and it's also discipled people. It's evangelism and discipleship. It's also prompted people to grow deeper in their relationship with Jesus. And it's also prompted others to serve in Jesus' name. Well, a couple of takeaways. I think the one definitely is that Jesus wants to restore, and I call it also restory us. You know how sometimes we get these, these uh, you know, when we've done a failure, and it's just like it's locked into our memory. And we can't seem to erase that. And yet Jesus wants to give a new story to restore us. Perhaps you have a, a painful failure in your past or your present, that you just can't want or forget. Jesus does not want that to be the end of the story. He doesn't. And it doesn't have to be final if we trust him to restore and to restory us. He can. He can use it, and he can use us as well to help restore others. But the story also reminds us that we can, apart from him, we can do nothing. Remember, how many fish did they catch? All these experienced fishermen all night without Jesus. Nothing. With Jesus, suddenly, more than they've ever had in their life. It's a lesson to us. Jesus said, he gave the image as well of the vine. Apart from me, he said, you can do nothing. But through me, you can do the things that I have done. And so we need the master's touch. His guidance, his presence, his power. Well, Jesus also wants, he wants you to love him and to serve him. Loving Jesus is what matters most. It's the heart of genuine ministry and service, always. As commentator Mark Allen Powell has said, Jesus doesn't just want his sheep to be fed. He wants his sheep to be fed by someone who loves them. Right? Mother Teresa was famous for saying, I cannot do great things, only small things with great love. She was, she was onto it. This is what Jesus is getting at. If we love Jesus it will enable us to love the unlovable. It will help us to persevere when we feel like giving up because he has promised to never give up on us. I think Peter had given up on himself and Jesus had more faith in Peter than Peter did. I love that. 
Is there a, a person God is calling you to shepherd, to come alongside, to guide, to care for? Or is there a role that he is calling you to fill? You know, Rob said earlier, even leaders, leadership, we need shepherds, elders. I remember years ago, uh, I was kind of a reluctant pastor. And then I was reading a book. I can still remember the book that I was reading. And what was most important in the book was the verses that he quoted from 1 Peter chapter 5. And somehow on that occasion, on that day, they just cut right to my heart. Peter says there, Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them. Not because you must, but because you are willing. Because you're willing as God wants you to be. That's what he wants. Not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve. Not grudgingly serve. Eager to serve. Because I want you to. Not lording it over others entrusted to you. That's not the kind of leadership. But being examples. Just being an example. Sometime an example of failure, but not quitting. Because knowing that God also forgives you and gives you a chance. And then Peter says, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. That is worth serving our Lord for. Let us pray. And as we're praying, I invite the worship team to come back up. Oh, Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the great shepherd. You are the shepherd who models for us. Lord, uh, what leadership is really about. All of it, loving Loving others, being able to love the unlovable. Lord, that's what we were, that's what we are. And yet, Lord Jesus, you modeled how much you loved us, how much you loved the whole world, a world hell-bent against you. And Lord, we live in a world that we see far too often is hell-bent. And yet, Lord Jesus, you came to make us heaven-bent by restoring us into a relationship with you, forgiving our sins and giving us a new opportunity to serve you, to show our love for you. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would help us even this week to carry on your mission, that we would recognize when you are present, guiding us, directing us, calling us into service. And Lord, that we would serve you with our whole hearts, knowing that you are the one who has restored us and is calling us to continue that restoration work in our world for your honor and your glory. Amen.